This is They Create Worlds, episode 168, Activision and Kotick, part two. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Before we go into more horror that is Activision and Bobby Kotick, we want to horrify you with our smiling faces. Boy, you sure know how to market a thing, Jeffrey. You know me. My sense of humor is odd. (laughs) But yes, after a year's hiatus due to moving and chaos and all of that stuff, we are bringing back our annual live stream where we record a super duper mega episode three four twenty but really three episodes back to back to back all while live streaming the entire process and interacting with you the listeners in the past we've done such big topics as the hundred most influential games of all time the console war between nintendo and sega The history of everything, particularly ambitious. The history of video games generally, etc. And this time we are doing another rather gigantic topic, which is the home computer industry of the late 70s and early 1980s with a particular focus on the price wars that completely wrecked the home computer market between 1982 and 1984. So get your popcorn ready. Get your memes armed and set to engage in glorious computer combat as you join us on September 24th, 2022 at 12.30 p.m. Central Time. I will put appropriate in your time zone thing information on the website, but that's U.S. Central Time, which is 1.30 Eastern. 10.30 Pacific. According to the Google, it claims that this will enter your ears around 5.30 p.m. GMT. You got some numbers. I hope you can figure out where we're hiding. (laughs) This, of course, will be on Twitch again. We'll live stream it. There'll be a pretty little box around Alex, a pretty little box around me. There'll be chat. I'm not quite sure what else might happen. Something usually does. You'll see my messy office in my new locale, because I don't green screen screen and backdrop like Jeffrey does. My cat may even make an appearance. Jeff has 500 cats, so there'll definitely be at least one cat appearance over there. Oh, there's always going to be a cat appearance, usually. In between shows, we'll have a cat show up and like, Hi, cat. Hi, Julian. Hi, Ember. Now I have three more. We could have guest appearances by Lulu... Kiki, or even Kitten. That's right. The possibilities are endless. Come for the cats. Stay for the computer history. I, of course, will be updating the website with some more information there, usually on the main front page. You have that to check out. Also, speaking of the website, I am also revamping that a little bit. I'm still playing around with some of the layout and what extra information there. But it's been pointed out to me that the search functions on our podcast hosting website 
does not lead to finding what you're looking for very easily. And with fast approaching 175 episodes here, that's a lot of episodes to go through. Yeah. I'm moving a lot of the show notes or making a copy of a lot of the show notes into the website that's much more searchable, where you just have the title of this episode, the description, and then a link to a little more detail with all the links and playing the episode, so on and so forth. I'm still playing around with it. A little bit of a work in progress. Something I'm playing around with in my spare time amongst 16 bazillion other things. <laughs> Enough about me. Enough about Alex. We're here to present to you what everyone's here to listen about. Bobby Kotick and Activision. How he took a company that he more or less annexed and proceeded on with his day conquering other lesser companies and bringing them into the fold that is Activision. That's right. Last time around, we went into the history of Bobby Kotick pre-Activision. From his carefree youth, when under 10 years old, he was already selling ashtrays to playmates and wallets to partners at his father's law firm, moving up into the world of Little League concessions, tennis clothing, and night spot rentals for teenagers, into the world of computer operating systems, then software applications, packaging, and translations, finally into the world of video games more directly, as he and a group of partners, casino mogul Steve Wynn and longtime friend Howard Marks and other friend and money man Brian Kelly, purchased just enough of Activision to get themselves in their clean house, fire everybody, move the company, and embark on a new journey. We talked about how he cleared out as much of the debt as he could, how he finally got the specter of the Phillips lawsuit out of the way. Now we're in 91, 92-ish, and ready to start exploring how Activision was reborn over the course of a decade and a half or so. We're going to take this in a couple of chunks. It's a big enough story that we can do this. The focus today is really going to be on that first period of the early to mid-1990s, because there was a lot of stuff that had to happen there to lay the groundwork for the future success. The period of time that we're going to talk about today, for most of it, Activision was still not profitable. This was a really long road back. We're talking about a company that in the 1991 fiscal year, which ends in March, so this is right after Bobby Kotick took over. This is basically the last year of the company under Bruce Davis, because even though it's the 1991 fiscal year, it's, it's March is when it ends. In 1991, lost almost $27 million on revenues of only $28 million. This company was a mess, and there were a lot of reasons for that. We have a whole episode that goes into that. We have a mediagenic episode, so we won't belabor that point here. But what Bobby Kotick was inheriting was really the possibility of a company rather than an actual company. That's why he did what he did. That's why he fired everybody, reincorporated Picked up house, uh, moved from Mountain View to Santa Monica in the Los Angeles area, and basically started the company over from scratch. But there was some connective tissue. There was some continuity. 
without that connective tissue and without that continuity, Activision would not have survived. It's not like it was a complete clean slate. There were some things in motion at the company before Bobby Kotick took it over that were actually very important to stabilizing the company and getting it starting moving on the right track. What assets did Activision have at the time that Kotick took it back over? There were basically three main things that Bobby Kotick was able to leverage to start getting the company back together. First of all, because they had been such a leader in the old video game industry, you know, the Atari VCS days, and in the computer game industry of the late 1980s, they did have a fantastic distribution network. Just like Electronic Arts, they had gotten into direct distribution. They were not going through middleman, and they had direct distribution to about 80% of U.S. retailers. So they had a phenomenal distribution network that they could leverage. This guaranteed that as they started creating product again, they would be able to get that product into stores. They would be able to get that product in front of consumers. The second thing that they had that was very important is they did have a beloved back catalog. Not just in terms of Activision property, but also in terms of Infocom property. We have to remember, of course, that Activision had purchased Infocom in uh, 1986. In a lot of ways, this deal was a huge mistake. They were picking up Infocom at a time when the text adventure was in decline. When the processes, techniques, game engines, design sensibilities, etc. that had propelled Infocom to success in the early 1980s was no longer going to be a guarantee of success in the late 1980s. And indeed, it was not. They had a lot of problems. There was still power in the computer game world behind some of those names. Games like Zork, Planetfall, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, even Leather Goddesses of Phobos had a cachet amongst a certain group of users that at least promised the potential of continued interest in some of those properties moving forward. And of course, on top of that, they had the action games. They had all the great stuff from the Atari days, most notably Pitfall, but also Kaboom and River Raid. We did a whole episode on a lot of those classic Atari VCS games that Activision did. Again, you can check that out for more information. The third thing they had was some interesting technology within the company that had been developed by some of the staff there in the late 1980s and which was ripe for exploitation in this new era. I'm going to get back to that technology piece of things in a second, but I want to start with the legacy IP aspect of this. There was actually a project underway even before Bobby Kotick took over the company to try to exploit the Infocom product just a little bit. Now, we have to remember, as we discussed in our Mediagenic episode many years ago at this point, Bruce Davis, the CEO of Activision, which he changed the name to Mediagenic, was not a fan of the Infocom purchase for some very rational business reasons. There was some bad blood created through the way that he handled some of this, but he was correct that, as I said, that this was a kind of problematic purchase because they were past their prime. As Mediagenic was falling apart, and Bruce Davis was looking into anything that he could possibly do to keep the lights on at the company, short of filing for bankruptcy, which, as we stated in the last episode, he did not want to do because he wanted to protect his employees and not take them through what ultimately did happen, which was all of them getting laid off by Bobby Kotick. So he was shopping around as part of his attempts to raise cash 
the Infocom properties. He just he wanted to find someone to take over that IP wholesale as a way to generate some cash. There were a few adventure game companies around at that time. Lucasfilm Games hadn't really gotten into it yet, but of course you had Sierra Online, Ken Williams, King's Quest, Space Quest, Leisure Suit Larry, all of that stuff. The name at this time in adventure games, of course graphical adventure games, not text adventures. Also Legend Entertainment, founded by Bob Bates, who had actually worked on a couple of Infocom products and was the closest thing to a successor to Infocom in the text adventure space. There weren't really any takers for this Infocom media for the reasons that we've already talked about. I mean, text adventures were past their prime thanks to Sierra. Sierra wasn't interested because they didn't do text adventures. They don't care about that back catalog. And even aside from that, Ken Williams has always stated in interviews and everything else how the people at Sierra were proud, and he was proud, about how the company went his own way. He says he deliberately did not play competitors' games because he didn't want to be influenced by them. Not only is Infocom completely outside of the kind of product that Sierra does— I don't think he'd even want to be associated with old products from another company like that. So they turned him down. Bob Bates would have probably been interested in it because he loved text adventures and he loved Infocom and he had done a couple of games for Infocom in the later days of the company. But Legend was brand new. They were still trying to get their feet on the ground. They did not have the excess capital to just go out and buy Infocom's IP. They were a startup. He wasn't getting any tankers. He was lowering the price, lowering the price. Finally, he was trying to get just as little as 25000 for the whole thing. This entire legacy of a dozen or so text adventures, the entire IP rights to games that back in their day had sold, in some cases, as many as 100000 250000 I think Zork eventually even reached half a million units, the original Zork. Games that were so big but hadn't been in recent years. This did not sit well with one of Activision's producers by the name of Kelly Zmock. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's, uh, his last name is spelled Z-M-A-K. Apologies if I'm not. When Zmock heard that Davis wanted as little as 25000 for it, he didn't think that those numbers added up. He thought, okay, sure, text adventures aren't what they used to be. But there are a following for these properties. They have to be more worth more than that. There has to be a way that we can get more money out of this than just basically giving it away. His approach to this was, okay, look, there's a lot of nostalgia around these games. It may be the text adventures aren't the blockbuster form of computer game entertainment that they used to be. Hundreds of thousands of people bought these games. Hundreds of thousands of people liked these games, and the kind of people that liked these text adventures probably still like them today. These games are now out of print. If you want to get them now, some of them just aren't available anymore. People have moved on from the old computers of the early 1980s and the mid-1980s onto the PC platform. Some of these games have been made available, perhaps, for the PC platform, but a lot of people, when they bought them, they bought them on their older systems back in the day. I bet there's enough nostalgia out there that if we create a compilation package where we just put all of these games in a single release and just put them out there, nostalgia will propel sales of this thing. We won't sell many copies, probably. It won't be a blockbuster, but we'll spend so little money on development 
that we don't have to sell a lot to make some money, and I bet we'll make more than 25000 stinking dollars by doing this. Davis was not convinced, but Davis was also desperate. Mediagenic was desperate. So he said, okay, fine, if you can keep development costs below $10,000, we can do this thing. At that point, it's low risk, probably not high reward, but maybe a little bit of reward. So fine, go ahead and do it. Well, this whole thing got interrupted by the bankruptcy. I mean, there came a point where Activision, Mediagenic, they weren't going to be putting anything out, (laughs) even for $10,000 of development costs. So the project fell by the wayside during the dark days when the company was falling apart. Kelly Tzmok was one of those eight or so employees that remained with the company when it moved, because Kotick didn't keep a lot of development talent, but he did keep several of his producers, because he knew that he needed to develop new games, he knew that they'd need to go find new talent and bring new teams together. I'm just speculating here, but I assume that it made sense to him that he needed to keep some people on staff that were knowledgeable about game development. He needed a core to rebuild around, and he chose that core to mostly be producers. Didn't keep every producer, but he kept Smock, kept Eddie Dombrower, he kept Tom Sloper, he kept a few people that had been producers under the old regime. Smock was still with the company after the transition, and so once Kotick took over, he brought up this idea again to Kotick and to Peter Doctorow, who, as I mentioned last time, was hired in 1992 to be the head of Activision Studios, which was going to be the internal development apparatus of Activision under this new regime. They gave him the green light to resurrect this, because one of the things that Bobby Kotick recognized is that there was a rich back catalog, and the way that he was going to have to start getting the company back on his feet was just by mining the catalog that was already there, because it was going to take time to staff up and get new proposals in place and get new games in place. Mining the back catalog was a very sound way to get things started. Smock was given the green light, and he uh, released a compilation, not of every Infocom game, but a selection of Infocom games, uh, including many of their biggest hits, though not quite all of them, under the name The Lost Treasures of Infocom. It was a success. There was nostalgia out there for this product, and the value was good because you got so many games in one package. This was 20 games in one box for one retail price. A lot of people that maybe didn't have it on the latest systems or on their newest systems or people who had lost their copies over the year or people who had never had a chance to buy some of these games, they flocked to it and it sold over 100,000 copies, which by the standards of the early 1990s on PC platforms was still pretty good. I mean, the market was starting to shift where games were starting to sell more. But as as we talked about in our 100,000 for 100,000 series, I mean... 100000 not bad at this period of time. So they got a little money out of that with very little outlay on their part. It also, I think, helped them crystallize the strategy going forward, which was, we've got this great back catalog, let's exploit it, not just by re-releasing the back catalog, but also finding ways to exploit that IP with new games, new ideas. So that was kind of the first thing under Kotick that started the process of getting the company moving again as a game company was releasing The Lost Treasures of Infocom, which was eventually followed by a Lost Treasures of Infocom 2 the next year, 1992, which completed the Infocom canon. So now all of those Infocom games were available in a modern setting, modern as of the early 1990s, for people to play again. They definitely got more than $25,000 out of it. It's at this point, then, that the 
nostalgia for the past, milking the back catalog aspect, and the technology aspect that I mentioned earlier as two of the three main things that Bobby Kotick could exploit to bring Activision back start to intersect. Again, to fully understand this, we have to go back to the mediagenic days again briefly and describe what happened around the entertainment product called The Manhole. We talked about The Manhole, of course, in our mediagenic episode, and we're not going to tell the complete history of that again because we've been there, but The Manhole was the first project by Rand and Robin Miller, uh, the brothers who founded Cyan Entertainment and who would go on to create the very important computer game Myst. The Manhole came about because of the interest of the Miller brothers in HyperCard, which was an add-on, an accessory for the Apple Macintosh that basically allowed clicking through a hyperlinked group of objects. Remember, this is pre-internet. So the concept of hypertext has been developed, but the whole thing hasn't been commercialized yet. We don't have the World Wide Web yet. The average person hasn't been exposed to this idea that you go to a website, and then there's a link on the website, and you click on that link, and then it sends you to another website, and then you click on that link, and it sends you to an image on that website, etc., etc. This was not something that was generally out there yet, but HyperCard was an application of hypertext specifically within the Macintosh environment where you could create these kind of point-and-click linkages to do database work or other stuff like that, very similar to how the World Wide Web would develop just a few years later. Once they got interested in this hypercard, they created the manhole, which was basically an interactive exploration of a storybook aimed at children. It wasn't really a game. It was an interactive experience They had meant for it to actually be more of a traditional kind of children's experience kind of thing, but then when they started playing around with it, they got so enamored with just clicking around the environment they created that they decided that was more fun. You start on a screen and there's a manhole. You click on the manhole. A beanstalk comes out of the sewer. You click on the beanstalk and you can climb and see where it goes. And then there's another thing to click, another thing. There are all sorts of things to click. And they take you to all of these different places and experiences, most of which are very surrealist as evidenced by the beanstalk coming out of the sewer once you open the manhole. This kind of point-and-click thing was still very new, even with GUI interfaces being a few years old. The idea that you're just clicking through an experience like this was still very novel. At the same time, Mediagenic was really trying to get into the Macintosh market and really trying to get into the hypercard market. Bruce Davis was a strong believer in these markets, and in fact, a lot of the productivity software that they created in this time period through their uh, 10.0 label, their new subdivision label, whatever you want to call it, was focused on database and personal organizer stuff using HyperCard. Because with a combination of hypertext and simple scripting, it was very easy to create something interactive and that allowed you to move through with a GUI interface point and click. And Bruce Davis really thought that was the future. It was, just like, though, with the multimedia promise of the late 1980s, early 1990s, where people were getting excited about CD-ROM and encyclopedias and merging video and images and text together, it needed the internet to be the future. It wasn't really the future as it was. HyperCard itself never really took off. It was an add-on for the Macintosh, and not every Macintosh owner had one, and the Macintosh, of course, was losing ground to the PC anyway. So HyperCard was a dead end. But that idea, obviously, of clicking through things and of hyperlinks was in no way (laughs) a dead end over the long haul. 
they had the manhole. Mediagenic released it on Macintosh, but they wanted to release it on other platforms as well, because even though they're betting big on Macintosh, there's other platforms out there that want to be on all of them. This required a reworking, a fundamental reworking of the game, because HyperCard is only for Macintosh. So they couldn't just take the manhole as it existed on Macintosh and very easily port it over to other systems with just a few tweaks in the code here and there. They were basically going to have to redo this from the ground up in order to get it onto these other systems. It just so happened that there was a technologist at the company by the name of Bill Folk who had been in the uh, computer game business uh, since the late 70s. He had uh, done some work for Avalon Hill going all the way back to 1979. But in the middle of the decade, he had co-founded a company by the name of Aegis Software that was really focused on the Amiga platform, because the Amiga was the new hotness at that time in terms of having great graphics and video and all of that that other computers at the time couldn't compare to. He had worked with another person there kind of idly on an adventure game engine that would have been similar in concept to the Infocom engine. We've talked about how they had an engine that essentially allowed them to use a virtual machine. So basically, when they wrote something for their engine, they could instantly make that available to all platforms because it was a virtual machine. So they just had to create a little code to uh, activate the virtual machine in every specific computer environment. And then the rest of it just runs off the virtual machine. So to port it across systems is virtually effortless because of that virtual machine structure. They were kind of working on something similar to that a little bit, though something that would have been incorporated graphics because they're on the Amiga. The Amiga is a very graphics forward system. They're not trying to reinvent the Infocom wheel. They're trying to do what Infocom did, except put it in a more modern graphical environment. They never finished it, to my knowledge. But once they had the manhole, which Volk was very instrumental in pushing Mediagenic to publish because it had come in from Cyan, he returned to that work in order to create a development environment where they could take Manhole out of HyperCard and port it to other systems. The engine that was created out of this was called MADE, which was an acronym for Mediagenic Adventure Development Environment. So that's MADE with an E. M-A-D-E, yes. As in, they made something. Not as in, everybody ought to have a MADE. By uh, finishing the system, they were able to port the manhole to other systems, including some very advanced multimedia systems like the FM Towns coming out of Japan, which was a specifically multimedia-focused computer in this time period. So as part of creating this engine, they'd come up with something that was very good at doing graphics compression and doing more advanced digitized graphics and would even have the potential to be able to do some video stuff some video compression and video work on top of uh, normal computer graphics of the time. It just so happened that Bobby Kotick knew Bill Volk. As we talked about in the last episode, the disc company, the company that Bobby Kotick and Howard Marks had in the mid to late 1980s, was all in on Amiga. Bobby Kotick really believed in the Amiga as a platform in that time period, and they released a ton of product on the Amiga. So they were part of this Amiga development community, and Aegis was part of this Amiga development community. Because of that, Volk and Kotick had actually met. I mean, they hadn't interacted, I don't think, a huge amount, 
but they knew each other. Kotick knew who Volk was, and because of this, Volk was basically the only technology-type person that was kept with the company when Kotick left everyone go. You know, he kept some admin people, some business people, some producers to serve as the core of rebuilding the product development apparatus, and he kept Bill Volk. Probably because they had this prior history, and he kind of trusted him and knew that he was a good guy and, and was good at this stuff. So Volk further developed this engine and said, we can really use this engine to create some games. And Kotick was like, okay, yeah, go ahead and do that. The first game that they made was, again, they're exploiting that Infocom back catalog. And, you know, this this engine is particularly well-suited to adventures. It started as an adventure development kit, and the manhole was not a traditional adventure in any way, shape, or form, because it wasn't a puzzle. It was just an interactive experience. But still, it required the same kind of interaction with the screen that you would find in a typical adventure game. Once again, they decide to look to the Infocom catalog in order to start to exploit this system that they have. The first thing they do is they create something very fast. They need to get product out. So they just kind of essentially do a a throwaway game, Leather Goddesses of Phobos 2. We talked about Leather Goddesses of Phobos a bit because we went into the whole Infocom thing a little bit. But it was kind of a wacky, X-rated, but not really X-rated, science fiction-ish kind of thing, almost like Leisure Suit Larry meets uh, Zork. Saying that, that's not at all what it is. That's almost as misleading as it is helpful in describing what the game was. It kind of combining B science fiction material with, you know, a little more risque, a little raunchier material. That was the original Leather Goddesses of Phobos, which started as a joke title with no game idea behind it and eventually became a game. They decided, you know, that game had done pretty well. It was kind of the last Infocom game that had done decently. I mean, it wasn't as big a hit as a Zork or a Hitchhiker's Guide, but it was kind of the last one that had done decently. It was still on pe- in people's memory a little bit, and so they decided, let's make a game using this made engine. We'll get Steve Moretzky back, who had created the original Leather Goddess of Phobos, and we'll just turn this game out quickly and get it out there to have some product. They did, and it wasn't great. They didn't spend a lot of time working on it. There was also a desire to make it easily accessible, so they made the puzzles very, very easy. They kind of underestimated the demand within that community for something that's a little more rigorous. This has often been a tension in adventure games, the making it too easy kind of thing. Mist was often criticized. Not, I mean, Mist had some some gnarly stuff he had to do occasionally, but Mist was very much criticized because it didn't have traditional puzzles. Roberta Williams' Phantasmagoria was deliberately made easier as an introduction to adventure games and got flack for its easier puzzles. That's always been kind of a thing in the adventure game community. So it got pretty savaged for being too easy, for being too short. It didn't really do that great. Bill Volk's response to this, as he has said himself in interviews, this is not extrapolating, this is actually what he said, was like, okay, fine, you didn't like our super easy adventure game. We'll just make a game that's super ridiculously hard arbitrarily, stupidly hard. And we'll see what you think of that. That feels like a pretty spiteful way to go about making a game. I mean, obviously, somewhere deep down, they probably also felt that that's what their public was looking for, because, I mean, they do want their game product to be successful, but basically decides we're going to make the hardest adventure game you can ever possibly think of, and (laughs) we'll see what all you critics think of that. This time, they decided to continue the Zork series, which, of course, is their biggest, most successful Infocom series of all. 
They do a game called Return to Zork. Folk does a lot of the technology on it and does some of the design. Eddie Dombrower is the producer. They bring in a new guy, Doug Barnett, to actually be the principal game designer who wasn't too familiar with the Zork franchise. Kind of had to learn on the fly what Zork meant. There isn't a lot of lore behind Zork. Uh, It's always been kind of a slapdash mishmash of stuff, but there are still some qualities that go into making a Zork game or describing the Great Underground Empire and the Flatbush Dynasty and all of that. They make this game return to Zork. They use FMV because they have the technology they can do this. And this is the period when multimedia is becoming a big thing. Remember, Bobby Kotick has moved the company down to Los Angeles specifically to be within the heart of the entertainment industry rather than the technology industry. Management is very keen to get in on this whole FMV thing, this whole Sillywood thing that is just starting up at this period of time. They've got the technology for it because of Volk's engine. It's not fully FMV. It's a combination of video and more traditional graphics. They make a really hard game with deliberate hard dead ends. Like there's this one point very early in the game where you plant this plant at the edge of town. You have to make sure that plant doesn't die. If that plant dies, then you've locked yourself out of the game, but the game doesn't tell you that until much later. You may go hours playing the game, not realizing you can no longer win before that comes back to haunt you. I mean, that kind of stuff's just cruel. Even by 1992, you've had Monkey Island come out, and there's this move towards more fairness in adventure games. Here, the Activision people are going in the complete opposite direction and making something as obtuse as they possibly can. They even made it so hard, Activision even finally put their foot down at one point because they created this bog that you had to navigate through. It was randomly generated each time the way the bog would shift. There was no definite safe path through this bog. There was, you know, a walkthrough couldn't help you because it was randomly generated how it would work. That got enough complaints that Activision was like, no, you can't have that. You need to have one path through this bog. The game did do some interesting things. It was moving towards an icon-based system of movement, which was still very new. They weren't the first to do it, but at this juncture, that was still pretty new. You had the capability of essentially recording conversations and taking snapshots of locations and then sharing that with other NPCs to try to get their reactions. You know, they were trying to make it interactive in a way that a lot of adventure games hadn't been before. It was kind of interesting in that sense, though. At the end of the day, it was very hard and and probably a little too finicky, and I don't think most people consider it to be a particularly great example of the genre (laughs) anymore, but it was a Zork game. Zork still had some cachet, and it was in this new technology area. It had the graphics, it had the full motion video, which was kind of becoming the fad and all the rage at the time when it was released in September 1993. It sold pretty darn well for the company, all things considered. The game itself looks a bit clunky with the interface because you have to click, 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 click to do even the most basic thing. Back in the 90s, seeing a game where you have effectively live actors, the full motion video, silly whatever stuff going on, you're interacting with characters who are at banks, something that you don't really see until now to an extent in the last decade or so does cgi actually catch up to this level you know it was a time that there was definitely a lot of style over substance going on in the multimedia area because you had kind of a new wave of people coming into computer games that were a little less hardcore 
So it sold uh, several hundred thousand units very quickly, and by 1994, it had actually sold over a million units. Now, a lot of that was due to bundling. It's an open question how many of those million-plus people that bought it actually played it. Certainly some did. Like I said, I mean, it sold several hundred thousand copies kind of right out of the gate, and a lot of those people were people that were buying it to play it. One of the things that drove a lot of sales of these kind of multimedia games at this time, Myst included, that came out the same year and sold millions of copies, was that games like this were really the tail wagging the dog of CD-ROM sales. There was all of this multimedia excitement, and the multimedia experience was centered around a PC with a CD-ROM drive. CD-ROM drives were still relatively new in the early 90s, which of course meant that they were relatively expensive, which means that people weren't just buying them to buy them. People needed encouragement to buy them. And so there was a lot of bundling of game software with CD-ROM drives as a way to excite people to serve as tech demos. Certainly, I know when we bought our first computer with a CD-ROM drive, which was a little later than you did, it came with a LucasArts pack. It came with Fate of Atlantis, Stay of the Tentacle, and Rebel Assault, because Rebel Assault had those video sequences. And even though the other two were traditional graphic adventures, the CD-ROM versions took advantage of the space of CD-ROM to have full voice acting. So, you know, we got a bundle with those games just thrown in for free with the CD-ROM drive that came with the computer. When our friend John Lewis first got a CD-ROM drive, he got a similar bundle. I don't know if your CD-ROM drive, I can't recall if your CD-ROM drive came with a similar bundle when you first, uh, your family first took the plunge. I think ours came with Myst. One day, Dad's like, come play this thing. CD-ROM drive, Windows 3.1, Myst. That would make sense because Mist was a big bundler. So Mist was an outsized hit. It sold like 6 million copies, which was well above and beyond what any other computer games were selling at the time. Most of those were sold through bundling with CD-ROM drives. Many of those people probably never actually played the game. They booted it up once, got frustrated with it, and then maybe booted it up a few more times when they had friends over and were like, hey, come see what computers can do now. And you might boot it up again just because the graphics were so gorgeous, but they never actually finished or played it. Return to Zork was a similar thing. So it sold over a million copies, but a lot of those copies were sold through bundling because it was definitely a game that would only appeal to a very specific subset of adventure game players because it was very hard. This was a period of time when adventure games were starting to move towards something a little more fair. Return to Zork, as I said, released in September 1993, was the first big hit coming back for the company. They'd done the Lost Treasures of Infocom games in 91 and 92, and that generated some revenue. But this is the game that really announced that Activision was back, because it did very well. Being back in this context doesn't mean that they're all the way back yet, because they've had a lot to go through. They've gone through a lot. They're down to nothing. Just to catch up with where the company is falling out sales-wise in this time period. We talked about 1991, where they were right when Bobby Kotick took it over. The fiscal year 1992 was the absolute low point, because this is the restructuring period. Remember, when I say fiscal year 1992, we're talking the period ending in March 1992. They did get Lost Treasures of Infocom out in 1991, but they're basically not doing anything yet. They're not generating revenue yet. They've cut everything to the bone. So in 1992... It's kind of weird. They have two fiscal reckonings in this period. 
because this was the period when they reorganized the company. They did the new stock offering that we talked about last time. This is when they reincorporated. The old company kind of disappeared. So they have two reportings in 1992, one for the old company, one for the new and improved Activision. The old company generated $7 million in revenue. The new company, $2 million in revenue. So they fell all the way from $28 million in revenue in 1991 to $8 million in revenue in 1992. And that's just because you know, they're not releasing anything. Everything's off the market. Everything's dead. Part of what happened when the company started falling apart is that retailers returned most of the product that they had bought from Activision from Mediagenic because they could see the company was going bankrupt. They could see that they were not going to get any money out of the company for the product unless they returned it and got their money now. Because remember, the way it works in retail is you know you take the product and then you sell it. They weren't necessarily paying for it right away. So they were sending product back. So there wasn't a lot of Activision product out there. So, you know, they've fallen to a low of 9 million. I said 8 million, but that's only because I can't do math. Of 9 million in 1992. They still had a loss. Their loss was much lower because, of course, in addition to having no product, they also had no overhead anymore. They'd fired all the employees. They'd gotten out of their leases. You know, they weren't spending anything either. They weren't making money, but they weren't spending money. So they reduced their loss to about 1.7 million in 1992. Fiscal 1993, which is the first year that they kind of have Lost Treasures of Infocom stuff churning up. They have some other stuff churning up, but this is still before Return to Zork, their first big hit back comes out. 1993, their revenue goes back up to almost what it was before. It goes to 21 million. They've narrowed their loss just a little bit to 1.3 million. So they're still losing money. This was all part of the plan, because as I kind of touched on at the end of the last episode very briefly, Bobby Kotick knew that they were going to need a while to dig themselves out of the hole they got into. So he was not promising the moon to investors when he took over the company. What he told them is, it's going to take us at least four years to dig out of this. What I can promise you over the next four years is that we will have large growth in revenues and will be near break-even in profits. Wall Street was very confident about this. There was a lot of confidence in the Kotick leadership group. They presented themselves as very business-savvy. They presented themselves as people that were going to bring a new level of discipline to the doings of the company, that were going to be a little more corporate in their handling of the company. They were well-financed by people like Steve Wynn which I think also built in a lot of confidence. Wall Street was fine with this. They were buying the stock. The stock was uh, you know, beginning to go up from its doldrums, but the company still wasn't making money. 1994, fiscal year, this is when Return to Zork has just been out for a little bit now, because again, March 1994. Revenues grow a little bit again to uh, 26.6 million. The loss also increases a little bit, almost 2 million, 1.987 million. They're just kind of treading water, but the product is starting to come at this point. Return to Zork is the vanguard, but there's other product that's on the way. With the success of the Lost Treasures of Infocom and with the success of Return to Zork, the focus continues to be on exploiting properties that the company already has in the stable. They start turning their attention during this time period as well to the Activision properties, not just the Infocom properties. Three new titles are commissioned based on three of the biggest games of the VCS era, Kaboom, River Raid, and Pitfall. 
In this, they're not just looking at the PC market. Activision is very much mostly focused on the PC market during this time period. I think just because the costs of entry are so much lower. We've talked about how difficult it is to break into the console market, especially the cartridge console market, because you have huge outlays. You not only have to pay licensing fees to the producer of the console, the Nintendos and Segas of the world, but you also have to buy cartridges, very expensive wrong cartridges. And those cartridges are provided oftentimes by the company as well. By this time, that's relaxed a little bit, but it's still often the case that Nintendo and Sega are the ones providing the cartridges. You have to buy the cartridges. You have a minimum order you have to buy. You can't just buy like 500 of them. You have to buy a lot of them. And if you miss your market, you're screwed. So it's high risk getting to the console market and it's very pricey. For the most part, Activision in this period is focused on the PC market and they're focused on moving forward technologically in the PC market. They're very into FMV. They're very into the Sillywood thing. They're very into CD-ROM. The idea that they have is they kind of identify that there's a glut of product out there. I mean, that's a no-brainer. Everyone knows there's a lot of product out there. And so they decide to take an approach, which was kind of different from the mediagenic approach, of focusing on a very small number of products, but making them truly high-class AAA products, and then invest heavily in advertising on each of those products, make each of those launches an event as a way of building excitement and then building strong sales around a small number of products. That's kind of what the strategy of the company is in this time period. And it makes sense as the best way to align their resources when they have so few resources. They don't have the safety net that allows them to throw 50 products at the wall and see what sticks. They really need to be selective in how they do this. That largely in this period means avoiding console. But the old Atari product makes much more sense on console. This is action game material. They do decide to exploit some of this Activision product on console platforms like the Super NES and the Genesis. So they commission these three games. Turns out that two of them are canceled for whatever reason. I don't know why, but Kaboom and River Ray, those products never come to fruition. They're presumably not happy with them. As I said, they're focusing on a small number of high-quality products rather than throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. But they do proceed with the Pitfall project. Pitfall, of course, had been the biggest hit that they had back in the day the old Activision had had on the VCS. It was the darling of the 1982 holiday season. It sold three and a half to four million units on the VCS. Big deal. It was one of the true founders of the uh, console platform genre. It's a name that still had weight. It had a sequel back in the day, Pitfall 2 The Lost Caverns. There'd briefly been a cartoon. It was another one of these properties right at the end of the golden age that had become transmedia, similar to how Pac-Man and Qbert had. So they brought this forward. But again, they don't want it to be just another also-ran. They need this game to be a sharp game, a good experience, because that's what their whole deal is built around, making money on a few high-quality items. They decide that the area that they can really make a mark is in the graphical presentation and the animation. Again, this isn't something unique to Activision in this time period. As the 90s continued, in that 16-bit market, you didn't really have a lot of gameplay innovation over the 8-bit market. You saw a lot of the same kinds of games, the same kind of platformers and shooters and RPGs and everything else that you had seen on the 8-bit products, but just with better graphical and better multimedia presentation. 
One way in the middle of the 90s that some developers were starting to make their platform games stand out amongst an array of Mario and Sonic clones that were starting to proliferate was by providing the very best animation possible. This is the first time, really, that professional animators were being brought in to animate the characters in some of these platform games. And some of the very notable examples of that are the output of David Perry, both at Virgin Interactive and then the company he founded himself, Shiny Entertainment. The two big ones here that we think about, of course, are Aladdin for the Sega Genesis specifically, because it's a different game than the one for the Super Nintendo, which the Disney animators actually helped in the creation of the animation for that game. Then uh, Shine Entertainment's own Earthworm Jim, where animator Mike Dietz, who was an employee of the company, did such a great job of animating. And these games were setting themselves apart from a lot of the also-ran platforming content that was coming out after Mario and Sonic, in part because of the incredible animation. Activision decided to take that same approach with their new Pitfall game and get some real professional animation help. There really weren't a lot of options in this time period if you wanted to get a truly brilliant Disney-style animator. You couldn't go to Disney, obviously. Disney has its own properties it wants to exploit, like Aladdin. It's not going to help you exploit your properties as well. There was Don Bluth Productions. You know, they were also kind of a bigger name, and they'd been burned by the whole video game thing when they did Dragon Slayer way back in the day. I don't have any factual information about this. It's not like Activision approached Don Bluth, but I imagine Don Bluth Productions, and this is speculation, was probably not very interested in getting involved in this kind of thing. There was another guy providing Disney-quality animation that was active in this time period by the name of Bill Croyer. Bill Croyer had started his animation career in the 1970s. He hadn't really been planning to go into animation, but in school, in an advertising class, he had to make a little advertising video as a project. He decided to do an animated thing. He kind of liked that and ended up falling into animation. It turned out that Chuck Jones, the famed Looney Tunes director, was giving a talk. So he went and saw Chuck Jones and showed him some of the work he had done. And Chuck Jones was like, oh, this is pretty good. You should come out to Hollywood and try to make it as an animator. I think you have the talent. And so Croyer went out to Hollywood and contacted Chuck Jones and was like, hey, I'm in Hollywood now. And Chuck Jones was basically like, hey, that's great, kid. Good luck. Because Jones didn't want to hire him. (laughs) You know, he was green. He just thought that he had the raw talent. He bummed around for a couple of years, got some advertising work, and got a bit of a portfolio together, and then was able to parlay that into a job at Disney, which, of course, was the gold standard for animation at that time. They were slowly moving into their dark period, their lost years in animation, but some of the nine old men were still there. They were still the gold standard in animation, and so he ended up doing animation work on The Fox and the Hound and kind of getting an education in in how to do Disney-style animation. He decided to leave Disney when they turned their attention as their next project to The Black Cauldron, which he didn't think was a very good idea and which history has shown was not a very good idea. Definitely the black sheep, pun I guess slightly intended, of the Disney animation family, finally released in 1985, though they had been working on it for years before that. So he left Disney, went out on his own, and then ended up uh, connecting with Steven Lisberger, who, of course, went on to have the idea for the movie Tron. Troyer ended up becoming the animation director on Tron. For those of you that don't know, Tron, uh, it's a cult classic, but the big thing about Tron is it was basically the first movie 
to rely almost exclusively on CGI, computer-generated images. They also had to do some traditional hand-drawn animation to kind of bridge the gap because everything was still very new then. It was a merging of computer animation and hand-drawn animation. So serving as the animation director on that, Croyer became very adept at this kind of new area of the blending of traditional animation and computer-generated animation. So he worked at a couple of special effects companies after that, and then he left to found his own company that was specifically focused on this blending of traditional and computer-generated animation. He made a film, a short film in 1988, called Technological Threat, which was nominated for an Academy Award that had this blending of computer-generated traditional animation. You know, it works on many levels. It's kind of about this robot that's brought in to work at this firm where people are hand-copying documents, and then this this robot is brought in, this machine is brought in to do the work because it can do it more efficiently. It's kind of cute, and it's, you know, the fact that it's blending two styles of animation. It's also, a technological threat could also refer to the fact that hand-drawn animation is being replaced by computer-generated animation. So it was kind of this clever little thing, technological threat, and it got him a lot of notice. So his company, Croyer Films, started to get bigger contracts, and then the big movie that the company worked on was a movie called Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest, which is not really a greatly well-remembered, I don't think, movie today, but it was a big deal when it came out. I'm sure you've seen it, Jeffrey, as I have. I mean, I saw it as a kid. Yeah, I saw it. You know, it's, it's fine, whatever. Yeah, it has Tim Curry and Robin Williams in it, so that's cool. You know, it's not a particularly remarkable movie, but it's it was one of the few big animation projects that was not coming out of Disney or Don Bluth Productions in this time period. Activision wanted to go all in on the animation for their Pitfall game, and so they actually hired Bill Croyer and his studio to do the animation work on what became Pitfall the Mayan Adventure. You can tell in the finished product that there's, you know, some very professional animation work that's been done on it. The character of Pitfall Harry, who's the the protagonist of these games, has a lot of character and a lot of personality and a lot of different kinds of expressions and movements that he makes when he's doing various kinds of jumps from platform to platform. It did have some control problems. It didn't play as smoothly, necessarily, as some games, but it looks beautiful. They did a Sega CD version where they even enhanced things a little more and added an introductory full motion video sequence because, of course, they were big on FMV. Everyone was big on FMV. So even though it it had some problems and it's not necessarily as well-remembered as a platform game today, just on the strength of the Pitfall name and the beautiful animation and everything, it did sell over a million copies. So it was a very successful game for the company and another important milestone in bringing the company back to health in the early Kotick years. It was, uh, as I said, I think uh, released in 1994. The game was pointed to a lot of different things. Looks like Genesis, Super Nintendo, PC. Mm-hmm. The other thing that they did in this time period, kind of exploiting this old Activision product is similar to how they did the Lost Treasures of Infocom and had success with that. They also created in 1995 something they called the Atari 2600 Action Pack, which bundled together a lot of old classic Activision VCS games for computer platforms, initially for Windows 3.x and whatnot, and then they also released versions for Windows 95 when Windows 95 came out as well. 
This was another example of them exploiting the old product. That's what the story of this time period, kind of the 1991 to 1996, 97 time period, is for Activision and for Activision getting back on its feet, is realizing that they have this great old library of products exploiting that for some decent sales. So they had a million seller in Return to Zork. They had a million seller in Pitfall the Mayan Adventure. They had the action packs and the lost treasure collections, which maybe weren't bringing in quite the same numbers as the new games were, but were still providing them a way to generate extra revenue using that great back catalog that they had. In fact, the action packs sold about 200,000 copies between them. We're slowly building back up. We're slowly getting to a place of stability at this point. The fiscal results are continuing to reflect that, though they're still not quite getting over that hump. In 1995, their sales skyrocket from $26.6 million to $40.6 million. He's providing that huge growth in sales that he had promised. They didn't quite double, but they got close. The loss narrowed, but the loss in 1995 fiscal year, again ending in March, was still $1.5 million. They're making moves. They're building up the studio. They're exploiting that property. They're getting their name back out there, and they're growing revenue. But they're not quite over the hump yet. They're still losing money. The turning point for the entire company is another release that is exploiting not an own internal property that they already have, but a license that they have had since the Mediagenic days. And that is Mech Warrior. The Mech Warrior property is part of the larger Battletech property, which Activision had the rights to on computer platforms. Battletech is a pen and paper mech combat game created by a company called Fossa Corporation in 1984. It's a board game played on a hexagonal map, and you have these mech units that go after each other, and they have different attributes different weapons, different abilities. You kind of throw these at each other and see who comes out on top. It's a strategy game involving mechs. Then in 1986, they extended this whole Battletech thing with Mech Warrior, which was a role-playing game, a tabletop role-playing game that was based in the Battletech universe. Activision had already released a couple of games based on Battletech and Mech Warrior. In 1988, they released a turn-based, essentially RPG, called uh, Battletech, the Crescent Hawks Inception, that was actually created by uh, Westwood Associates, later of Dune 2 and Command & Conquer fame. It was released under the Infocom label because uh, Mediagenic had pushed all of their RPG strategy adventure game product onto the Infocom label, but it wasn't really actually an Infocom product. It was an Activision product released under the Infocom brand. There had also been a MechWarrior game released in 1989 and created by Dynamics, later of Red Baron and The Incredible Machine and Aces Over Europe fame. Not tribes. And also Star Siege tribes. Fair call out there. (laughs) Unlike the first game, which was more uh, tactical in nature, this one actually had you pilot your own mech. 
So you would go out on missions and you would upgrade your mech by buying and selling parts and, uh, you know, actually control your own personal mech in this game that was kind of part RPG, part combat simulator. Very much in the design of a flight sim back in the day where you had very simple polygons, you had most of the screen taken up with an information HUD, and you're moving around at a very slow frame rate doing your combat thing. Exactly. And and we have to recall that Dynamics, the principles of Dynamics, had gotten their start making games like Stellar 7 and Arctic Fox, which were futuristic kind of first-person tank games. This MechWarrior game basically took its lead from those previous Dynamics efforts. So graphically, it was sort of 3D, but it was kind of a fake 3D kind of looking world. As you said, it moved around very slowly. It was fine, I guess, but neither of these MechWarrior games were too big a deal. However, this was a license, this FOSA license, that Activision still had after the transition. And so just as they were looking at everything that they had to look at making games, they were also looking at making another MechWarrior game because they had this license and they might as well use it. At this point, the whole MechWarrior license property, whatever you want to call it, comes to the attention of a programmer by the name of Eric Peterson. Eric Peterson had a long history of working in actual flight simulators, like real flight simulators to train military personnel. He worked seven years for a company in Los Angeles that did flight simulator work, but with the end of the Cold War, that entire segment of the industry really collapsed because there was a cut in defense spending, and a lot of these defense companies had to lay people off and look for new avenues to use their technology. You know, as a side note, several of them make deals with video game companies and are actually very important in the advancement of polygonal graphics in uh, early polygonal coin-operated games like Ridge Racer and Daytona USA. But it was a time of downturn for the industry, and so he got laid off. Ended up answering an ad for programmers from Activision and was the first programmer hired into the company after everyone was laid off. They didn't have any programmers in the company when he was brought in because, as I said, you know, they were getting rid of everybody. And so he did some work helping out on a few different projects that were going on when he first came in. But he was really interested in doing something in full 3D. You know, at at the time, there was this focus, as we talked about within Activision, on all this full motion video stuff, as there was in the wider industry. I mean, Activision was not alone in this. As somebody who grew up in this world of creating 3D simulations, he really wanted to be involved in that rather than in something full motion video or or these adventure games or whatever else that was going on at the company. He learned from a coworker that they were going to be making a sequel to MechWarrior. So he immediately jumped on that. He guided the vision of the project through the early days of development. What he was really looking for was truly a hardcore simulator product in full 3D, not this kind of faux 3D that the original MechWarrior had had just a few years before when the technology was more limited. He wanted a game where you controlled a mech, you went out on missions, and you got a somewhat authentic feeling experience of piloting this mech in a fully 3D world. So he started work on that game, I think, probably in 1992 or so. Development didn't really go very well. What Peterson was looking for was something very ambitious on the computers of the time still. 
Because again, we're talking about the early 90s. There are no 3D graphics accelerator cards. Those don't exist yet. We don't have the voodoo here, kids. Exactly. 3D graphics and the calculations for those 3D graphics are being done by the same hardware that is driving the computer. It's being done by the CPU. And the CPU's busy. It's got other things to do, like accepting your input, playing with the hard drive. Processors were advancing. The 486 had come out by this time. The Pentium was right around the corner. There was a math coprocessor for the 486 that could take some of the burden off of the CPUs. Computers were getting to the point where you could do some more with this, but as we may recall, even the big hits of the early 90s that were 3D tended to be what's colloquially called, this is not a correct technical term, but it's a colloquial term, colloquially called 2.5D, where you may have a world that is technically a wireframe three-dimensional space, but your objects within that world are not fully 3D. When I say something like this, I'm thinking of something like Doom. Doom looks 3D. It looks like it takes place in a 3D space, but it's really just a two-dimensional wireframe kind of space where it gives the illusion of 3D and then all the enemies are actually still sprites. There's no depth to any of the enemies in the original Doom or in Doom 2. That's all two-dimensional graphics in a three-dimensionally rendered world. Even something a couple of years later like Dark Forces, the Star Wars game that was actually a true 3D world, which Doom in a lot of ways wasn't still used sprites for objects and enemies within that game world. It was just a very intensive thing to try to get fully three-dimensional objects rendered before the time of 3D graphics help in the form of uh, graphics accelerators and video cards. Simulators could get away with a little more, and there were even in the late 1980s a small number of flight simulator products that were in true three-dimensional worlds where there were polygons. But the trade-off here is that these games could get away with it because, first of all, a lot of them are taking place in open space. You don't need a great deal of ground detail. Most of the world being rendered is just sky, and they tended not to put too much effort into rendering objects on the ground. The second thing is that simulation enthusiasts were willing to play a game that was a little bit slower in the name of a little more realism. An F-15 Strike Eagle or an F-19 Stealth Fighter did not need to move as fast as a Doom you could get away with having a lower frame rate. MechWarrior could theoretically also get away with a little bit of that because it was a simulation. They could get away with having a slower-paced game than, say, Doom was. But they did have to have more surface detail than your typical flight simulator because this game was taking place on the ground. Now, that doesn't mean that they were going to have super detailed photorealistic environments. That was never going to be in the cards. But it was going to take more processing power than your typical flight simulator that's in the sky. The challenge here is that they have to create something that's in full 3D with full 3D objects. They're not going to in a half D like Doom did. And something that still plays realistically like you're realistically tromping around in a mech, which means that it cannot be as slow as the original Mech Warrior, which is dog slow, as you said. It also can't do the cheat that the original Mech Warrior did, which you also pointed out, which is that there's actually a small gameplay window surrounded by static 2D art of the cockpit. This thing needs to play smoothly and needs to do so with a fully 3D world. And that is not easy. But this is the goal of Eric Peterson. This is what Eric Peterson wants. He wants a real simulator. Development is a bit of a disaster for the first few years. Because try as they might, they cannot get this thing 
working with any degree of speed. It just doesn't play well. There ends up being a basically a complete turnover of personnel working on the game, and it looks like the game is going to be canceled. Just up and canceled. But then it falls into the hands of a new group of people that have just gotten done with Pitfall Mine Adventure and are thrown onto this product. Most notably, producer Sean Veshi and programmer Tim Morton. When they get a hold of this game, it's basically just a mission simulator. You choose a mission, you go out, you do the mission, you choose another mission. It's pretty much lacking in the graphical department. They just haven't been able to get this thing together. They can't get the full 3D going. They can't get any set, any amount of speed going on it. It's just a mess. All this money's been thrown at it and nothing's happening. The new team makes a couple of key decisions. First of all, they decide that this game has to have a story. It cannot be just a mission generator. There is still a big sim population in the demographics of computer game players, by which I don't mean little people running around speaking in in gibberish whom you, you know, lock off from all the bathrooms and torment them to death. I don't mean that kind of sim. I mean people that are into flight simulators, military simulators, sci-fi simulators. This is still a big enough segment of the market that you can do something with that. In this modern day and age, in this post-Wing Commander kind of world, In order to attract a big enough audience, you need some story behind this, too. It can't just be like a random mission generator kind of game. So they decide that they're going to develop a story so that you have a reason that you're doing all of this mech work. The other thing is, is they figure they have to redevelop the project so that it can render more than two mechs at a time. Because when they get a hold of this project, that's basically all it can do is render two mechs on the screen, and that's it. They know that to attract people, it's going to need to have really great graphics. And that doesn't just mean getting full polygons. It means having good lighting, good shading. It has to have all of this really state-of-the-art stuff. And they don't have the power to do it. They think, however, and Tim Morton thinks, that they can maybe get this to work if they can convert the game to access additional memory in protected mode. For those of you that don't know what I'm talking about here, back in the day, pre-Windows 95, PC memory was somewhat eccentric. By eccentric, we mean expensive and small. It's more than just that it was small. The problem is it was implemented very, very poorly. Basically... What happened is the IBM PC, as as we've discussed before, was kind of a skunkworks project thrown together using existing off-the-shelf parts that weren't necessarily specifically designed to power this kind of microcomputer that IBM had conceived of. So there were a lot of quirks and limitations around the parts being used. And one of these was that the original chip used in the PC, the 8088, could address up to one megabyte of memory, which at the time seemed like a lot. 
because the machine could only address one megabyte of memory, as a way of trying to future-proof the IBM PC, IBM made a decision at that time that they would divide this one megabyte of addressable memory into two sections. They would basically wall off a chunk of memory, 384K to be exact, which was called high memory for future use, for special purposes. In practical terms, the original IBM PC could only address 640K of memory. Now, I say only, but that was actually a huge amount at the time the PC came out. Home computers at that time were only starting to get to the point where they were addressing 64K of memory. We're talking literally 10 times that amount. At that time, 640K was a lot of memory. However, a problem occurred because MS-DOS became the de facto standard in operating systems on the PC. MS-DOS itself was kind of a quick, cobbled-together operating system designed to be completed in time to meet IBM's stringent deadlines for being the operating system that would ship with the PC. As I'm sure most of our listeners know, they bought an operating system created by somebody else, made a few tweaks to it, and boom, they had an operating system. Here's the thing. Because at the time, the IBM PC could only address 640K of memory, MS-DOS was built to only be able to handle 640K of memory, only be able to address 640K of memory. What this meant is that even as later PCs used more advanced Intel chips that had bigger buses and could address more memory, applications on PCs running in the MS-DOS environment still topped out at 640K because that's where DOS topped out. DOS would refuse to believe, no matter how much memory you put in your computer, DOS would refuse to believe you had more than 640K memory in your computer and would not allocate those other resources to anything. Now, you may be asking, okay, fine. Well, we have better chips now. Why didn't Microsoft just change MS-DOS so that it addressed more memory than 640K? That seems reasonable, right, Jeffrey? I just changed this number here, recompile there. Oh, look, it's fixed. Wrong. Because the other thing that is very important, very, very important in the success of the PC and the reason why it trounced all of its competitors, one of the reasons why it trounced all of its competitors through all the years, was backwards compatibility. If you had a program that was written for a PC in 1981, when that computer had an 8088 processor and the first version of DOS, that program would still run on a PC that you bought in 1992. There may be some quirks here and there, but it is functionally the same environment, and so the software still works. Most of the time. It's compatible. It works. Now, because they could have made some choices that made it unusable for other reasons, like, for instance, in games, a lot of older games wouldn't work on newer hardware because it played too fast. But that's because short-sighted game developers had not put in any limiter on max frame rate and max clock speed. And if they had done that, those games would have worked fine. So, yeah, there could be individual quirks based on decisions that were made, but there's no fundamental architecture 
or environment reason why that software would not work. The 640K thing was so central to MS-DOS that if Microsoft rewrote the operating system to deal with that, it would break compatibility with older software. One of the key tenets of MS-DOS was that everything would always be compatible. So PCs, even in the early 90s, were stuck with this 640K limit on memory, which by that time was not an impressive amount of memory anymore. This had already started to become a problem even in the 80s, because when Intel released the 286 processor, it already could address more memory. Because of the MS-DOS limitations, this didn't work. Now, the 8286, it was being developed at a time when they still didn't know quite how big this IBM PC thing was going to be, so it wasn't specifically optimized for use in a PC environment, but they did want to keep compatibility with the 8088. So what they did is they created two modes on an 8286, what they called protected mode and real mode. Real mode kept the old limitations on addressing memory to maintain backwards compatibility. Protected mode allowed for addressing of memory beyond that 640K. Protected mode is the mode that Intel wanted people to use going forward, but people were stuck with real mode because MS-DOS was stuck in real mode, and MS-DOS wasn't going to change, and as long as everyone was still using MS-DOS, it didn't matter how much memory an Intel chip could address. It was still going to address 640K. So developers started getting around this by tricking the PC and tricking the operating system. They figured out a way to trick the 286 into resetting on the fly between real mode and protected mode. I'm not a technical person, so I'm not going to try to go into detail on this, but they essentially found workarounds that allowed them to unlock additional segments of memory that DOS normally is not able to touch. This was done a couple of different ways, but the main way of doing this was to do this thing where you trick the computer into moving from protected mode to real mode and then back again to access what was called extended memory. By the time the 386 came around, Intel realized that people were doing this. So the 386 was built in with a native ability to switch back and forth between real mode and protected mode. Microsoft and Intel and Lotus, Lotus had been the software company that had been really driving this move for more memory, came together and created a new extended memory specification called XMS. Long story short, too late... Because of the way MS-DOS worked, you had to do a lot of tricky things to access all the memory that was actually available on a computer. Those of you that grew up playing PC games in the 1990s may remember the whole laborious process of using boot disks. A lot of that was just trying to balance the memory load between expanded and extended and regular memory because there was this whole nasty ad hoc system that had developed to get around the limitations of MS-DOS and early versions of the Intel processors while still maintaining full compatibility with old software. Windows 95, mercifully, finally got rid of all of this because it had sane memory management for the first time. Windows 95 didn't have much else, but it did have that. During this period of time, during these dark years, companies would often create DOS extenders 
which would basically allow an application to run in protected mode all the time, except when it was communicating with the operating system. The operating system, MS-DOS, couldn't handle it, but everything else could. When we talk about getting MechWarrior 2, we're finally coming back around, but we love tangents here at They Create Worlds. So when we talk about getting MechWarrior 2 to run in protected mode, what we're saying is we need to run it in a mode that allows it to access the full memory available on the machine rather than just 640K. By using a DOS extender, you can do that. A DOS extender, basically, and I'm not a technical person, so this is a layman's explanation, but basically just switches back and forth between protected and extended. So it keeps a program in protected mode all of the time, except at those specific moments it needs to communicate with the operating system, in which case it's put into real mode so that MS-DOS knows what it is. So a game like this, presumably, you know, you'd have to have it boot up within the operating system and within real mode, and then you could take it to protected mode and basically just leave it there for the entire time or whatever. Obviously, this is trickier than just having a game run normally. You have to do a lot of extra steps. They had not done this in MechWarrior early in development, but now the new guys coming in and the new programmer, Tim Morton, realized that maybe they can get this whole game to work if they can get it to run in protected mode. The game's on the verge of cancellation. I mean, they've put a new team on it. They're going to try to salvage it, but nobody is particularly optimistic that things are going to change. The team also, I think, kind of realizes that, you know, getting this thing to run in protected mode, this is a big shift. This is going to really delay the game. They're pretty scared that if they propose doing this in protected mode, once management learns what the timetable on this is, they're just going to cancel the game entirely because it's going to basically come down to, okay, this game is not going to work the way we intend unless we put it in protected mode, but getting it to run in protected mode is going to take so much effort and so much time that it's no longer worth doing the game. So it's kind of a catch-22. So what they do is Morton and a couple of other people go rogue. They wait until Howard Marks, who we've talked about before, the French tech guy that's a partner in the company and who is part of the product development apparatus. They wait until Howard Marks is going to be away at a trade show for a week. So there's basically no one minding the store. Then without permission during that week, they do a frantic effort to code up something in protected mode. They can't get the entire game converted over to protected mode in a week. It's going to take months. They spend a frantic week-long effort getting a little mock-up together, a little simple game loop together of how the game would run if it were running in protected mode. They just go rogue. They have no permission to do this. When Howard Marks comes back, they show him this demo. He sees the potential in it, and he agrees to move forward on this basis, even though it's going to delay the game. It's at this point, I got a little ahead of myself earlier, it's at this point that the Pitfall people are brought in, because most notably uh, the producer, Sean Veshi, and another individual by the name of John Spinale, or Spinale, I don't know how he pronounces it, who are brought in to be the new leads, the new producer and, and the new lead person on this game, and whip it into shape and get something out. So long story short, once they do this redesign, once they figure out that they want it to be a story game with good 3D graphics, taking full advantage of the available memory on computers by having it run in protected mode, they finally get this thing together. MechWarrior 2 31st Century Combat is released in July 1995. 
It hits a sweet spot in the market at this time. The market is changing at this point. It's not fully the sim crowd anymore. You know, dooms happen. The first person shooter is coming. MechWarrior 2 happens to hit a sweet spot where it has enough good, solid simulation stuff for the sim fans and just enough fast paced and actually pretty incredibly fast paced, all things considered, first person action for the new first person shooter crowd that it strikes a chord. It doesn't become a doom-sized hit because it's still not really part of that new first-person shooter wave. It still attracts a larger audience than your typical sim would capture. It sells 500,000 units within just a three-month period on its way to overall sales of over 700,000 units. MechWarrior 2 is the game that really brings the company back. And yeah, maybe it didn't sell quite as many copies as Zork did. But remember, a lot of those Zork copies were bundled copies. Yeah, it didn't quite sell as much as Pitfall did either, but Pitfall was a console game. Console games always sell more copies. One million is actually not super duper impressive for a console game. This game here, doing 700,000 units, that was a big deal. They released expansions that brought in even more revenue. This is the game, and lots of people have said this, this isn't just my opinion, this is the game that finally put Activision back on the map and announced that Activision was truly back. I'm looking at MechWarrior here. It is very, very smooth. We don't have that jitteriness, that frame rate, that choppy frame rate you get with a lot of other games. Yeah, it's simple in a way, but they do put nice little touches in there. When you're in the cockpit mode, the cockpit bounces up and down simulating your walking when you're walking around the landscape there's little landscape details yeah they're simple and they're just sort of shaded but it gets the point across you're fighting other enemies and you have a nice targeting reticule on them it's all red your hud is built into your interface and you have a really good full range of sight here with very little of the landscape taken up by hud Absolutely. Certainly a lot smoother than MechWarrior 1 had been. Like I said, it kind of hits that sweet spot. It's just simmy enough for the Sim fans. It's just action-y enough to draw in some of the action fans. And as a result, you get a big hit. 1996, the fiscal year ending in March 1996, sales once again increased significantly from $40 million in 1995 to $61 million in 1996. But far more importantly... There's a $5.5 million profit. We like money. Activision is finally out of the red and finally on this road towards greater success. That kind of brings us to the end of kind of this first period of the Activision revival. I know we've only covered a few short years here, basically from 1991 to 1996, just a five-year period. But this was the crucial period. This is the period when the company could have still very much failed. The company was still losing money for most of this period. The company had to completely rehire staff. It had to completely restart everything almost from scratch. As we said at the top of this, there were these three elements that they had going for them. They had the distribution. They weren't rebuilding a distribution network from scratch. So they knew that they could get their games into stores. They had a storied back catalog of product. And they were able to exploit this effectively. 
Pitfall the main adventure built on pitfalls of years past. Return to Zork built on Infocom games of years past. The action packs and the lost treasures packs allowed them to directly exploit the past IP. And even MechWarrior was building on a license that Activision had already had previously. Finally, they had technology and good technology people like Bill Volk, like Tim Morton, and like Eric Peterson, who were able to create these really impressive audiovisual products. Maybe Zork didn't always have the best gameplay return to Zork, but no, no doubt it was impressive audiovisually. They were able to build these technologically impressive products for this computer game market at this time. And Bobby Kotick and all of the marketing and other executives under him kind of recognized that they could leverage this technological expertise to build a small number of really high-quality games, market the heck out of them, start seeing revenue growth, and then eventually from that revenue growth, start seeing profits. That's really a good place to leave it here. We've gone on about this early period of the new Activision. We're going to do this one as a three-parter. We're not going to go all the way to the present. You know, in our first phase, we looked at Bobby Kotick and what qualities he had that allowed him to take over Activision and start to make Activision successful. In part two here, we looked at how Activision went from a totally bankrupt, literally, because they were in Chapter 11, totally bankrupt company to a profitable company, even if they were still only just barely so. In our final part of this three-part look at Bobby Kotick's Activision, we'll see how they went from marginally profitable company to video game industry powerhouse over the course of about another 10 years, culminating with their merger with Vivendi to form Activision Blizzard. Quite amazing to see how a company can go from bankruptcy, effectively burned down to the bare bones. Someone comes in and finds a few little gems that survived the fire and then is able to take that and leverage their own prowess in order to rebuild a company and have it actually be somewhat viable and profitable. Absolutely. And, you know, Bobby Kotick gets a lot of flack today, some of which may be deserved. But when we look at the Activision of this period, I mean, something that stands out is he trusted his people and he didn't meddle too much in game development. He gave the people in Activision Studios the freedom to do what they needed to do to make some of this stuff work. He knew that Bill Volk was a dependable guy because he knew him through the Aegis connection. He let Bill Volk do his thing with his technology. MechWarrior, someone that was truly just thinking from a bottom line business perspective, would have canceled MechWarrior too when it was very clear that it had sucked up a lot of money, had not gotten anywhere, and the only way to fix it was to throw a lot more money at it. But he didn't stand in the way. The technical people said they could make something really impressive if they just make these changes, and it'll be worth it, and he let them do it. Maybe as Activision got huge, became a multi-billion dollar company, maybe there was less room for people to do that. Maybe there was more dictating from the top. Maybe there was more bottom line focus. There was definitely more cancellation of product that they didn't think was going to be a long-term viable franchise. I mean, that's all true. But in this early period, whatever Bobby Kotick became later in this early period, he trusted his people, he trusted the product, he trusted the technology. Because he had that level of trust... He brought business discipline to the company, but without hamstringing creatives. I've often talked about one of my theses on the history of the video game industry, and we've talked about it before in this podcast, is that you have a production slash creative side of the industry and you have a business side. If either side is out of whack, your company falls apart. Activision is a great example of this. 
under Jim Levy after the crash during the uh, the early PC days. He let the creative people just be totally creative without really much inhibition at all on what they wanted to do. And they did a lot of avant-garde products that didn't sell well, and they lost money. Bruce Davis came in, reined in that creative, but was definitely more focused on the bottom line. He was not focused on having great creative success. He was focused on small, steady financial success. He probably reined in the creatives too much, and the business side was too in control, and they had trouble. Bobby Kota comes in, and he says, there's going to be business discipline. I'm a businessman. I know what I'm doing. There's going to be controls. There's going to be dependability, reliability from the point of view of the investment community. We're going to have discipline. We're going to provide a consistent result that the business community can get behind. But I'm also going to give my creative people a lot of freedom to make the kind of products that they think we should be making within the confines of having a little bit more business discipline and not being completely pie in the sky on the projects that we choose. That's the Activision that becomes a success. Say what you will about Bobby Kotick, and there's a lot you can say, especially as the company continues to mature. But at least in this time period, he's providing a balance that Activision has not seen in a long time. And that's why we are seeing it start to become profitable. And then very soon after this time period, the time period we cover in part three, start to become massively profitable. I don't know what else to say, but we'll see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. It helps us grow. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Back to Your Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license.